Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. Hey, welcome to another episode of Concerts That Made Us. I'm your host, Brian, and before we get into this week's episode, the answer to last week's trivia question was, of course, Gene Simmons. Gene taught at a public school on Manhattan's Upper West Side for six months. He quit when he realised the reason he wanted to be a teacher was because he got to stand in front of people and be noticed. But what he really wanted was to stand in front of people on stage as a musician. And now for this week's music trivia question. Which musician was offered the chance to write the lyrics of Purple Rain but turned Prince down? And we've got another five star review. Rock on. This is great. From a guy who has been to over 500 concerts and published a music mag, it's great to hear others talk about their experiences. Rock on. This was left by gmail 909797779 on iTunes. So let's get on to this week's episode. My guest is the person behind rock band Vatica and TikTok star Alex Miller. We have a really great chat about how Alex got into the music industry, about the complicated history with the band Vatica, and of course, the TikTok series Self Made as a Toxic Myth. This is an incredibly interesting episode. I know you're going to love it. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show.
Hey, Alex, you're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, great. Glad to hear it. I've, uh, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I feel like we're going to have a very interesting chat. Me too. I mean, if it's anything like the, uh, the, the pre-interview chat, that was, that was fascinating. <laughs> it was, it was. Unfortunately, that's not for the listeners' ears, though. So nope. You're it's privileged. top secret. It's <laughs> classified. Exactly, exactly. So we just heard your latest release, Gasoline. Would you like to tell us a bit about it? Sure. So um, Gasoline is a song about the potential of human desire, right? So you can have a desire for anything. It's, I don't know. Um, in America, we tend to associate the word desire with sex, and it can be for that, but it could also be for anything. You can have desire for fame, a desire for power, a desire for wealth, uh, you know, and so what it is that you desire really motivates your actions in, in life. Um, and a desire is neither good nor bad. It just is. It's how you act on that desire and what you do with that energy that it's giving you. So, so what do you make your life about that determines like a, the moralistic quality? So the song is written from the perspective of, excuse me, someone struggling with the fact that they have a what, what a lot of spiritual teachers would call like a, like a wrong, wrong action or wrong desire. And it, it feels like it's burning them up, uh, because, uh, they keep chasing it, but the more they chase it, the thirstier they get kind of, they never get what they want. Um, and that's the case with, I think with a lot of, um, destructive desires, uh, like for example, an extreme example of that is, is Jeff Bezos, who like his, lust for money has gone beyond even money and now it's just about power um to the extent that he's willing to subjugate people and destroy the very earth that we live upon in pursuit of his own like inquenchable thirst for you know what is it really i'm not a psychologist where where what does it actually trace back to but obviously it's like uh it's like an obsession at this point it's it's out of control you know and and it's fascinating because I don't think Jeff Bezos thinks of himself as a bad person, right? Like no one is a, is the villain in their own narrative. And yet people do villainous things because we're driven by these, these forces. So that's kind of what the song's about. Yeah. That's a very good point. Actually. It's almost like, uh, the richer he's got, he's turned into a, a classic bond villain almost, you know? Yeah. Well, he, he's, he's literally Lex Luthor. Like I remember there's, I read this Superman comic as a kid and, Jimmy Olsen, uh, Superman's like friend or whatever, mentions this offhand fact that, uh, and this comic was written in like the sixties or something. So Lex Luthor made like a hundred dollars a second because of all his corporations. So if he saw a hundred dollar bill lying on the street, it literally wouldn't be worth his time to bend over and pick it up. Except Bezos is that, except he makes like, like $10,000 a second or I, I don't know what the actual number is, but, um, and still, that's not enough, right? And there's so many, there's so many things that he could solve with that amount of wealth and influence. And instead of that, he's flying, you know, the guy that played Captain Kirk into almost space. And like, he's, you know, the whole reason he's working on his rockets is to move uh, all manufacturing jobs into space, whether that be by humans or, or robots and, and his, uh, I was reading in an interview with him, his ultimate goal is to sort of, uh, terraform the earth into a paradise planet, but only for the elite and then the rest of us will be up. I don't know if you've ever seen the show, the expanse, but that's literally the plot of the expanse, uh, ironically streaming on Amazon prime right now. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where he got the idea from. So yeah, he's like, this is great. Perfect. 
Oh, it's a it's a crazy world we live in. I feel like though it's um almost part of human nature to not be able to stop and almost always want more. You know. Yeah, uh, whether whether you attribute that to human nature or the the ego or whatever, like you know, you want more of what you want, and as long as you're thinking only about your you, like your your short term benefit, your long term benefit, as instead of considering that you're a part of a whole and how do your actions affect everything else around you? You know, this, especially with uh, this extreme version of capitalism that we all live under, uh, everybody has sort of this toxic individuality um, mindset. Like we're all separate entities um, that operate in our own personal little vacuums when in reality, you know, it can, it can be as simple as a, let's say I said something really rude, to you right now and that really ruffled you right and then you carry that energy into interactions with other people in your life long after this interview has ended and then that upsets them and so they so i've caused a ripple effect right and now that one thing and that one time might not be so bad depending mm. but it's like all of us going through lives our lives affect everything around us all the time from the the minuscule ways to the to the grandiose and it seems like the the people that are in power don't think of that at all they think of themselves and then everything else is sort of like a like pieces on a chessboard for them yeah yeah well when it comes to politics i uh i think it's becoming more and more obvious that nobody gets into politics to help people it's all about monetary gain <laughs> and power yeah or or if they did originally they get seduced by by those things yeah 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 exactly well uh we better move on to you or else we'll uh We'll have to, it'll be politics <laughs> that made us instead of concerts that made us. Sure. But um, I know on TikTok, you summed up your career in two videos that were about maybe two minutes long. I'm hoping uh-huh. we could maybe stretch them out this evening now. Um, sure. So can you tell me if you can remember your earliest musical memory? Yes. My, uh, my earliest musical memory is uh, dancing to music with my father when I was like, Know, three or four or something he must have been carrying me um, my father is a as a musician and composer and conductor and teacher for like got 45 years or something so I grew up uh, in a musical family so I've, I've been playing music since I was six so um, yeah that's that's my earliest one geez you uh you were hugely influenced from uh from an early age and there was I feel like there was probably no question that you weren't going to be a musician then, was there? I don't, you'd have to ask my folks. I, I don't know. My mom's <laughs> a, my mom's a therapist. So I guess I could have gone in that direction too. I definitely have like an intellectual bent, but, um, and I'm fascinated by human beings behavior, including my own, but, uh, but music is the place where I don't have to think like I just am. Um, mm. and I, and, you know, I always feel silly when I say this, cause it's kind of, um, I don't want to sound too esoteric, but I go away when I play music and just the music is there going through me. Um, mm. not that I'm like some profound vessel or anything. That's just <laughs> how it feels, uh, when I'm creating or when I'm performing music and a lot of other, my artist friends, whatever their medium, musicians, dancers, painters, whatever, feel that way too. Like the process of channeling inspiration feels like you are just that thing at that time. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons that I loved it from so early on is it's a, it's a, 
pure state of being beyond thought. Yeah, that's actually fascinating. I've never heard it put like that now. It's, um, it makes it um, seem almost pure, you know? It feels that way to me. Um, the, well, I'm talking specifically about the process of creation and performance. When you're in the process of production, like mixing, mastering, or recording, that's more nuts and bolts, which is, it's fun, but it's not like a transcendent experience where if I'm performing on stage, I just am that music at that point, or like, I'm not thinking at all. I'm just being I'm very, it's very present. And it's, that's the only place in my life where I feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like even right now, I'm remembering your question, right? I'm watching your reactions. I'm responding to them and I'm thinking, you know, slightly ahead of what I'm going to say. That's all a process that's happening as opposed to just being, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. If you could uh, bottle that feeling now and sell it. Yeah. You'd be the next uh, Jeff Bezos. They're trying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember a, a certain point when you looked at an artist and thought, that's what I want to do? Absolutely. Uh, the first time I ever heard Green Day, I was like, well, it's, it's, it's two things. One, oh God, I would, I would have been 12 or 13. And when, whenever it was Dookie came out in, in 94, like I wanted that record, but I couldn't have it because uh, it had the explicit language label on it. So I had to get their, their records that did, they had two EPs before that when they were on an indie label that didn't have it. So I like memorized those. And I also, I realized now I had a huge crush on Billy Joe Armstrong, but I was like, I want to be him. Uh, I want to like uh, do what he does, like write like, like him, like everything he is, like I'm all about. That's, that's my earliest memory of like, this is, this is what I want to do. Jeez, that's not one I hear very often now. Green, obviously they are a great band. I've seen them twice in concert myself now, but, uh, it doesn't come up too often as a huge inspiration. I don't know. I think I, um, I take your word for it. it. It depends on, I guess, the, the demographic. You know, I was, I was born in, in the 80s, so I'm, I'm their, like, target demographic. So if you're interviewing someone who's born in, like, 2000 or 98 or something, like, they're probably not the same kind of influence. True. And the last time they were really politically relevant was, like, 04 through 08 or something like that. Like when they, you know, with their resurgence with American idiot and 21st century breakdowns. So, you know, for a lot of people, uh, you know, it, it just depends when you were born, you know, it's yeah. a lot of people born at the turn of the century. And so that's like, Oh, you mean the music that came out when I was one? It's not going to be <laughs> yeah. relevant to them. Yeah. True. Actually true. It, uh, that tends to make you feel very old though as well. It does. It? <laughs> born in the 1900s. Yes. <laughs> halcyon days of yore (laughs) oh god what was your your first steps then after that was it get a guitar start learning was it automatically singing well i was i was born into a uh middle to upper as i guess to be fair it's upper middle class family um because they they actually own their own house and they and they had a garage You you know those stories where there's uh they started a company just in the garage. Like, well, that's that's still not starting from nothing. That's a point of privilege because you had to have a garage, right? But in my parents' garage was a acoustic guitar, which I uh, belonged to an uncle of mine. And I uh, found and just started teaching myself how to play. And from there, like, I knew that that was the instrument I wanted to focus on. I started on piano when I was six, but I, like that, that was, I was the instrument I really 
fell in love with. And um, yeah, then we, I, I was gifted a um, electric guitar and pretty quickly my, formed my first band when I was 14 and have been playing professionally ever since. That's quite an accomplishment. Was it, um, I know for me, when I was around 13, 14, every second person in school had a guitar, had a band. <laughs> was it similar for you? Uh, no. So I was, I was homeschooled until I was, I guess, right at 14. Like I, I wanted to go to high school to be around people my own age. But, um, so when I got to high school, high school is a horrible time for me, but I, uh, yeah, some people played the guitar, but I also grew up in a relatively um, small town. So I'm, I'm from the, the Bay Area, but when you think Bay Area, you think San Francisco or maybe Oakland. Mm. But uh, I grew up like 20 minutes, 30 minutes away from that. And so it, it uh, not a lot of diversity in the, in the <laughs> town that I was from. And so there's a lot of the stereotypical, like there were the preppies, there were the jocks, like there were the punk kids. Um, there were the nerds, like that kind of thing. So I, I, the only place I found any kind of acceptance was with the, the punks and the anarchists and stuff. And so a lot of them were musicians too. Um, but I wouldn't say that in my, in my high school, a lot of people had a band like from my high school, but there were a lot of, there was a local scene and there were a lot of like teenagers like me who had bands and that was the scene, but I, I didn't necessarily go to high school with them is all. Yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you. It must have been um, kind of hard to transition into high school then after being homeschooled. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. I was uh, incredibly naive. I had been used to hanging out with adults mostly before that. I mean, I had some like nerdy homeschool groups and stuff, but um, I wasn't prepared for the level of uh, meanness and emotional manipulation, um, especially that, you know, high school kids can be and at the same time i uh i had onset of uh or like it manifested my life for the first time in a significant way obsessive compulsive disorder which i i mean i have had all my life but it got that was the first time i got really bad and uh it wasn't um wasn't like a buzzword then it wasn't like a trendy thing uh it no one knew what it was exactly um and so i thought that I was losing my mind, which wasn't fun. Um, so that, that was a, that was a dark, in a lot of ways, that was a really dark time. And also it was, um, I had a lot of really great musical experiences during that time too. So music was my like one salvation in that period. Yeah. I was just about to say, um, was it music that got you through high school almost? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Music and, and, and performing music specifically, not just listening, but like, like being it, doing it, you know? I mean, mm. I band practice five days a week and uh, I, I was in this community college program where um, the teacher organized every Sunday. There was like uh, a 12 hour long, um, not 12 hour, I'm sorry, uh, there were 12 slots. It was like a six hour jam thing at the local bar, which I thought was amazing because like I'm 14 and I'm in a bar and you have to be 21 to be in a bar in America. And so I was like, oh, oh this is where the action is. All right. And, uh, and I just, that's where I, um, I played there like every week. Um, so that's where I f- honed a lot of my early stage performance and stuff was just getting the opportunity to play over and over and over again. It must've been quite hard though, 
you know, nerve wracking almost getting up on stage them first couple of times? No, um, the, uh, I don't mean this with any bravado, but the, the first and the last time I had stage fright was the, the first time I ever performed live. And then after that, I was like, Oh, I can do this. Um, uh, I feel really comfortable on stage when I'm singing and playing guitar. If I'm just singing, I feel more self-conscious. Like if I don't have a guitar on, I feel quite awkward. Um, Almost and, naked. Yeah. And if I, it took me a long time to learn how to talk in between songs, like public speaking is actually scary for me. But, but if I'm singing and playing, not at all. Um, so I, I didn't get good at being a, uh, you know, I never set out to be the, the front person of a band that just sort of happened because I was, uh -huh one of the people that could sing. So they're like, you you know, I guess you're singing. Like, okay. But, um, so I didn't really embrace trying to be a front man until like 2010 or 2012 or something. Um, and really develop like, uh, being able to like command a show or an, an audience as opposed to just being a player. Cause it's not yeah. about, um, it's not about like ego or like look at me like i i just i just love performing and i love playing music to people who might like what i make that's all yeah yeah i get you i get you it sounds almost and i was thinking of what you said previously about how you feel on stage and uh almost being like a vessel um yeah it's like when you got on stage you only had the stage for it the first time it's like you finally found your home maybe could you put it like that yeah, absolutely. I felt totally comfortable, especially that's, that's a really interesting way of thinking of it, because especially since you have a set list when you're playing, so you know what's going to happen, um, even if the audience doesn't. And so it's a, there's a, there's an element of control in the, in the immediacy and the, the spontaneity of, uh, of performing, because at least you know, in theory, what the next song's going to be. <laughs> Whereas we don't get that in life very much. Yeah, true, true. And um, I'm fascinated to know, how do you approach your songwriting? Then? Um, from, from what aspect? Do you mean the original like idea or the production? Is it um, a, par a very personal pro process or do you, uh, do you write from a character's point of view? It, I guess it sort of depends at what point. I've done all those, so it depends what point in my life you're asking i i i used to write collaboratively for my personal music i mean i still collaborate with people but if it's going to be like a, a vatica song um it used to be a total collaboration um and now uh, it's just me uh so i write and do everything myself my experience for writing anything though in general is that there's nothing and then an idea pops into my head like seemingly out of nothingness and then i'm compelled to go like jot down or write down or record that idea and sometimes that idea becomes a full song on the spot and sometimes it goes into like my uh giant catalog of ideas and you know i don't get to it for years or whatever because i did i get as far as i can with it anytime but my my goal is always to write a, a full song but um, so i don't again i don't feel like i invent them it's like here it is. What can you do with this idea? And like, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And I hear this melody for it. And then that melody makes me think of like, this could be about this. Okay. And then I sort of work on the lyrics and melody and chord progression. And then once that happens, I just plug it into um, 
song structure that I'm going to use. Yeah, yeah. I have a bit of a an impossible question now. I've I love oh. throwing it out at musicians. It's a tough one. You might right. not have an answer, but I'm ready. How, <laughs> how do you know when a song is complete that you can't add anything more to it? Um. So on the one hand. I guess it's really you have to let go because a song is never complete. It can always be better. And if you had an, your whole life to work on one song, you could improve it forever. From And whether that's from a writing perspective, a mixing perspective, a mastering perspective, a instrumentation perspective, like tweaking your lyrics, a vocal performance perspective, right? That's, that's why you'll see artists even go back and re-record, you know, whatever their iconic song was that that made them because they're a better performer now and they think that, you know, well, the song's got to be better um, now that I can do it this way. Um, so you just sort of have to sign off. It, it helps when there's a release deadline <laughs> so, <laughs> because it's like, uh, well, I have to have it, I, you know, I have to be able to live with it at this point. Um, there's, there's always stuff. So in some ways they're never done. And in other ways you'll kind of, or at least, I feel like I'll drive myself crazy if I try to like make the perfect song. And also if I, if I achieved that, if I made what I consider to be the perfect song, like I'd be done then. Right. Like I couldn't talk oh, actually it'd be perfect. So you're always sort of chasing uh, a, a completeness that you can never really reach. Um, so it's uh, my, my, my experience with it is every time I write something new, that's the favorite song that I've ever written ever for that month or however long I'm working on it. And then, um, and I get, I get really happy with the mix and, and the final product. And then I'm done with it and I move on to the next thing. And oftentimes I don't uh, listen to that. You know, if that was song was created last year, um, I probably won't be listening to it ever in another year because I'll hear like, oh, I'm better at this now. Or I should have mixed the snare drum this way or I should have done this. Or uh, yeah. It's too distracting. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I was just thinking when you were speaking, when you said... Uh... If you wrote the perfect song, I wonder how the likes of Lennon and McCartney would feel about their songs, you know? From what I understand, they, um, like, if you're talking about the stuff they wrote together, they often found it kind of silly. Um, and they were, they knew that it was pop. Mm. Um, there's anything wrong with pop, but they, they considered it like, I think Paul McCartney has a quote of him telling, uh, John Lennon, uh, all right, now let's go write a swimming pool. What they mean is we're going to make enough money for us all to have swimming pools, you know, like, yeah, um, I'm sure they had fun doing it. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. I, I, I would be aware of an artist that thinks that they've written or like buys into their own hype or thinks that they've written the perfect thing because I, I think that that's impossible. So that would mean they have so much ego that they, consider themselves they like buy into their own accolades or like i yes i'm a genius because i wrote this song it's like no did you did you write it was it written through you was it because of the combination of circumstances that came together at that time and the people and the musicians in the play you know what i mean like queen's still writing music but it's not queen without freddie mercury you know exactly adam, adam lambert's a great performer and he uh and an amazing singer and he he's able to sing those songs and do a great job with them, but it's not the same as Freddie Mercury, you know, so that, that, that the actual, if it was an algorithmic formula that equals queen, like something's missing. They're a different thing now. Yeah. Just have the same band. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good way to look at it actually. Um, can we speak about 
Vatica then? Yeah. How did Vatica come about? I know it's a bit of a complicated history. It is. Uh, I'll try to give you the short version. So me and my best friend uh, at the time uh, were playing in several bands together uh, up in the Bay Area when that local scene sort of kind of died. Um, and we set off towards Los Angeles in search of uh, fame and fortune. And when we got here, we um, placed an ad for a, a bass player and auditioned a bunch of people. So he's a, he's a drummer and, I, and I'm a guitarist. And I mean, I get around the piano too and sing. But um, so we were three piece for a long time and we formed what would become Vatica. So we, we did like the, the classic way. We played a bazillion shows did some like tours, um, worked our way up through the sunset strip playing, um, with a bunch of other more popular bands, um, and eventually gained the attention of, uh, this indie label that, uh, offered us a record contract. Um, I don't know if naive is the right word. Like I, I, we didn't have a lot of options. It was like, there was that. And then there was one other label that offered us a deal that was worse and then um so it was like basically that or nothing and uh you know we we were so hungry at the time that we took it even though there was a lot of provisions in that contract that were not great but um really? yeah but we and you know none of us are lawyers like i can i'm pretty good at reading contracts and understanding them but i'm still not a lawyer and so i wouldn't know what like alternatives to these certain clauses were so that what the what the indie label did was oh yeah here's your lawyer he works for the label here's your management they uh. work for the label here's your booking agent you know so but we were like i mean all right it's not the greatest contract but then you know we're gonna do well and we'll renegotiate our contract later and that in fact that's what they said that we could do hmm. and then they sort of just uh, sat on us and didn't really do anything. And uh, it turned out that the uh, the head of that label, I don't know what the exact psychological thing would be, but he, again, his main driving force was power, power over other people. So what he'd like to do is sign bands, give them a very small advance, and then just not do anything with them and have them all sort of audition uh, for his favor to be put on a tour or to be able to record something or whatever. So the first thing they had us do was like take down all our music, take down our social media, like um, not post anything. Uh, and they killed what they were doing is killing our buzz right away mm. so that we wouldn't be able to do anything without them. Then that label got picked up by Sony. So uh, suddenly we were, our contract was renegotiated and we were signed to Sony but still being managed all of our day-to-day -day stuff by that label. Um, but what it gave us the opportunity to do was record a record. There was some money there finally. Um, and we got to record this really great record with this wonderful fellow named Ben Gross, who uh, is a producer and, and engineer in Los Angeles at, at uh, the mix room is his recording studio. And he's got, he's worked with everybody. Like when you go into his uh, place, there's, there's just like walls of like, various level, you know, gold and platinum records and stuff. And you're like, oh, I man. know that one. I know that one. I know that one. <laughs> um, and, um, but he's the sweetest guy. Like, you know, he, he was pretty much done with producing at that point. Um, he liked us. So he decided to produce us. Um, uh, he treated us just the same as I've seen him treat, um, you know, 
unquote important people because we were an unknown band. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, happened over the course of like six months or something. And uh, we finished this wonderful produced product of songs that were all approved by the label and everything. And then they just sat on it and were like, eh, wow. we don't know if we, we like it because it's still our this, the decision to like send it upwards to Sony for release and stuff was, mm. was still controlled by this one guy. And everybody that, that worked in that indie label was afraid of this one guy because he held all their livelihoods. So no one's going to challenge him. And we don't have any power to challenge him because we don't have independent management. We don't have independent legal. And so actually Ben advised me once he learned what our situation was, he's like, you should get independent legal at least to like reevaluate those. And he introduced us to this amazing uh, lawyer uh, named Seth Lichtenstein who who's worked I mean, he's like been around for 30 years or something. So like the list of who he hasn't worked with is, you know, much shorter than the list of who he is, like everybody. And he helped us, uh, the short version is he helped us get out of our contract. Um, and that, that process of actually getting out of it took two years. So you have to remember this, we got signed in, uh, 2015 and now it's, uh, 2018 when we're finally released from the contract so all of our buzz and momentum has been killed at that point so our plan of showcasing for other labels like we did like ben actually helped us get like other labels to come out mm. but they were wary because we were still under contract until 2018 so they're like we're not going to challenge sony we're not going to buy you out because we don't think you're valuable enough because we're your buzz isn't strong enough even though like so we went from like playing to full uh, places on the Sunset Strip to like having a hard time drawing people because the buzz was gone, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And during that process, uh, members left, and um, I uh, I'm, I'm condensing time now, but I I went and found new people to play with after we got out of the contract and struggled finding the right lineup, and then thought that I did. Um, we did some uh, light touring. Um, and then I had a bunch of shows lined up and then the pandemic hit and they all left for one, understandably for one reason or another. Hmm. And for the first time I was forced to like, not do anything. Right. Be like, like, and actually that, um, stall in momentum was a blessing in disguise, not the pandemic. That's a horrible, terrible situation, but hmm. me being forced to sit with, all right, You've had all this experience. Who is it that you want to be as an artist? What is it that you want to accomplish? And actually answer those questions. And so, and uh, it was the first time I started just writing by myself as opposed to collaborating um, hmm. because my, my longtime friend and, and collaborator uh, decided to quit. Um, and so that's when my musical style started changing. It's, it's related, but it's not just like straight rock bro like alternative rock it's it's more expansive and drawing from my own personal influences as opposed to everybody's influences sort of crashing together yeah yeah and uh and that's when i started a tiktok because i was bored <laughs> and um and the amazing thing about tiktok like every social media company sucks right but but tiktok currently doesn't gate your reach. Everybody has a relatively equal chance of going viral. I say relatively because 
the algorithm is still racist. It prioritizes white faces. Um, there's certain, certain keywords that you can't say. It's still hard for musicians because it doesn't understand music. Like if you just play music, mm. it's always scanning for speech. So it might not know how to recommend you to other people. But I started with like music recording and sort of like industry tip kind of stuff and then throwing my music in there too. And then I started making the, the several series that I make now and it took off and um, gained me a lot of reach and now people are finding out about my music, ironically, because of me talking about music-related or adjacent things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really cool, and I'm I'm really uh, thankful for it. But I'm I'm not uh, satisfied because I want I want it I want the primary focus to be my 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 music, and so um, so I'm I'm still working on it. But I'm I'm thankful t- to be able to have to be able to reach an audience because when, um, you know, whether it's Spotify or Apple music or Instagram or Facebook, well, Facebook's like a boomer graveyard right now, but, um, but like Twitter or whatever, all those companies gate your reach. So even if you have, you know, whatever it is, 10, you know, actually a good example is the rock. The rock has like one point something million followers. Right. And I tuned into one of his live streams one time and he only had 50 K people watching him. Now, Five, uh, 50,000 people watching you is amazing, but out of a million, that's, that's not even 1%. And yeah. what Instagram does is it gates your reach so that even if there are people that say, yes, I'm following you because I want to get updates on you. It's factoring in all this stuff. Like when's the last time you engaged one of their posts, what type of engagements do you do? And so it's really frustrating for artists of any medium because they don't push content out they gate it in the hopes that then you pay to sponsor the post i was just gonna say it that is so frustrating but the problem then for a while that worked but the problem then is sponsoring posts uh i i swear puts you in front of their bots that they own because Mm. i've done plenty of social media marketing and you'll get like yeah you know you sponsored this post for $3 and 2000 people viewed it, but there's like no engagement and no comments. And so it's like, so you ran me past bots that you own, mm-hmm. but then if I use bots, you'll ban my account. So it's, I, I've almost stopped posting on Instagram and Twitter because it's like, what's the fucking point? Like nobody sees it. And on TikTok, um, I'm actually able to reach an audience. So, um, so that's kind of, where I'm at right now, I, I have my own legal, I have my own management, but I'm not currently signed and um, I'm just putting out music like as I, as I want to, well, I mean, my management handles like a release plan and stuff, but like as I want to put it out and they're really great people that I'm working with because they believe in me as an artist and a product as opposed to just um, a power trip. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, do you feel like you've any anger towards the music industry after your experiences? Um, not, not personally. I have anger that the music industry is a monopoly, a gated monopoly, like almost every industry now, um, because it's totally corrupted by capitalism. Um, so like if you sign to a label now, Unless it's unless you and I go start a label right now, there is no such thing as an independent label. They're all, if you look at who owns everything, it all goes back to the four major record company 
or maybe it's just three now. It might have just been three now, but there's very small number that actually own everything. It's kind of like um, the beverage industry. So when you, I mean, maybe this is slightly different. I don't know, but in in America, when you walk into like a supermarket and there's all the beer in the beer section, and there's this illusion of choice because there's all these different brands, but all those brands trace back to uh, one of two companies. And on the one hand, that's a good deal for an independent, or it feels like a good deal for if you're an independent beer manufacturer, because you get access to this distribution network, but you have to give up some of the ownership of your company and control. And that means that you're also, uh, every sale of your beer is also contributing to this monopoly that's conglomerate. And soon it'll, I'm sure it'll be one, one, uh, one beer company, you know? And what that creates is a system where like, if you're just an independent beer maker and you want to get your beer into a large chain here is, is called uh, Vons. If you want to get it into Vons, there's no way you can't pay anybody. Like there's no way to get in unless you're in the club. Right. And that's kind of how the music industry is. Like you can be a very successful independent artist up to a point, but to then get access to the best festivals, um, all the, late night shows, you know, radio, all the radio is pretty much dead, but the best like playlisting, uh, like all the things that you would associate with a successful musician, you have to be, well, there's two ways. You have to either be under contract with one of the big labels or you have to be so unbelievably rich that you can buy your way in and buy those same services. And that's totally, uh, totally prohibitive to any independent artist. And on top of that, we're, we're, using numbers as a metric for an artist's worth. So there's, you know, one thing I do is I, I try to seek out independent artists and put them on a, a playlist on my Spotify. Hmm. And I, one of the things I say when I post those videos is like, I don't care like what your actual listening numbers are. Like, I don't care if your song has just 91 plays or whatever. Like if it's a good song, I'm going to put it on there because I know that Spotify does not push independent artists. If you look at the top Spotify playlists, it's all major label artists that are on yeah. there. And that's no, that's no coincidence. The majors own like 40% of Spotify or something. So of course they're going to be, they're prioritizing them. So that's what I'm mad at is the the system needs to change. And you know, it's the same thing with the movie industry or the dance industry, or I'm, I'm sure, I don't know much about the art world, but I'm sure. And that's before you even get into stuff like who gets the opportunities, you know, like, yeah before you get into race and gender and sexuality and sexism and misogyny and like all that, you know, it, it's a, that's before you get there. So like, if I'm mad at anything, it's, it's, it's that system. And I, I want to um, change it. So the thing that I try and do is any little bit of success I get, like bring other people with me, um, other artists that I believe in. And I think that, if every artist started doing that, not, not that there's no other artists that do that, but if every artist, every artist does that, you'll actually start to see a, uh, a shift in the music industry. It's like a s- stacked so much against you. I often think to myself, could you imagine like, you know, the greats from years ago, the Elvises, the, the Beatles, guys like that. Can you imagine the guys that were actually like a thousand times better than them, but oh, things yeah. just didn't fall into place? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great, Elvis is a great example because he, I mean, talk about the original musical appropriator, right? Like he's a talented performer who barely wrote any of his own music and it, and he, 
his affectation is all based on uh, black American soul and rock and roll uh, down to like actually um, stealing songs. I did, I did a TikTok on that actually. Um, and the real person. So uh, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the song at the moment, but one of his most famous songs. Don't be cruel, I think, was it? It, it might be. I, I, I don't remember without having it in front of me, but one of his most famous songs, uh, the writer who was a black man was not credited on that for years and years and years. And he did get a credit, but he'd never received any royalties from it because he signed a shitty deal because like the music industry was even more segregated then than it is now. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I mean, late Elvis is a, you know, the original boy band, like he's, he's a label creation. Does that mean that Elvis wasn't a great performer? Like, no, but you know, he's not someone that, acknowledge any of that and and his legacy doesn't reflect that he's called the king of rock and roll right and the, yeah the actual inventor of uh rock and roll is i think it's big mama thornton like a is like a queer black uh woman who is the first person really credited with uh loud rock guitar performance and like mm. where's her where's her uh music industry hall of fame awards and stuff no yeah. no it's elvis is the king so the, it, the industry has always been fucked by uh, by these other societal factors, you know, white supremacy and systemic racism and mm. capitalism and like all that that stuff. But but uh, there used to be more, even though it sucked, more of a career path than now because at least you could get in a van and go tour, right? Yeah, yeah. And now that is so cost prohibitive and let's pretend we weren't in a pandemic for for a second like gas you know to be able to make money as an independent artist you have to draw a massive amount of people just to be even there's just to be able to even break even yeah, touring yeah. um and that's changed really like even in the last six years or so like even six years ago you might be able to still do it a little bit and now it's just not like you know again unless you're independently wealthy or you have you know very affluent parents or something uh and can do a vanity tour or, or buy your way into these clubs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about this all day because that, <laughs> you know, even the club system, like they're owned again, it goes back to there's uh, you know, live nation is one of them. And I forget the other one, but it's, it's a monopoly. So unless you're plugged into a booking agent who has access to that system, you're going to be playing a lot of shitty bars and those shitty bars have a high overhead, which means that you have to draw a lot of people. Crowd. Yeah. And that means you need, if you're going to do a tour, you need a huge marketing budget to promote you to people who don't know about you before you get there. So they show up for you. So unless you have the money to do all these things and either the expertise to do it yourself or the uh, money to hire people who know how to do it, you know, you're stuck. Um, so I think of the only viable career path for independent artists right now is, is online and create a demand for a live show by becoming as successful as you can online. That's what I'm going after anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Your series on TikTok, Ben, it's hugely fascinating. What made you, you know, start doing that series and seeking out these artists that portray the myth that they came from poverty or they, you know, they didn't have much starting off? Um, I think it's not the first one I did, but the, the one that, that irritated me and I started looking into it was Ed Sheeran because his whole story is that, you know, he went from 
busking on the street and uh, being, you know, homeless to superstar musician. And while those events did occur technically, he did sleep in his car a couple nights and he did do busking. That is not how he became who he is. So this, I think, is a combination of the experience that I've gone through of, um, you know, what you need to do is work really, really, really hard. And then the people, the gatekeepers will notice you. And they did. I got signed. And then all your problems are over. And it's like, no, that, that gets you from negative to zero. Like getting signed is like zero. And then there's all these other problems that we've been talking about. Right. And, and if you come from wealth, you have not only the money to buy your way around those problems, but usually direct personal connections with people that control the industry that you can just be like, you know, like if uh, Mick Jagger's like, Hey, my kid wants to do music. He just calls up the president of whatever. And then they get to go do that, you know? And, and, yeah. and it's tricky because it doesn't mean then that that kid doesn't work hard or isn't good, whoever they are or whatever. It's just that they're starting like one step from the end of the finish line and everybody else is at different points all the way along back. I also learned a whole bunch about it from a whole um, host of uh, BIPOC activists and uh, content creators, which I, uh, I linked to sort of an ongoing list of people that I'm learning from on my website. If you go to officialvatica.com slash links, there's links there for like who I'm learning from also anti-racism act, uh, resources for white folks like me and, uh, and then also, uh, you know, white music and all that stuff. But, um, uh, I think it's important, especially since, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a queer non-binary person, but I live in a, a mask presenting body. And so I, uh, as far as the algorithm algorithms are concerned, like I'm, I'm a cis white dude. Right. And so I, my voice gets prioritized over a lot of people just before I even speak, just based on the way that I look and our society and the algorithms. And so I think it's really important for me to point out that I'm not certainly not the first person that has been talking about this. Um, and, uh, and I'm, uh, sometimes not even the first person to be doing stories on the people that I do. Like, uh, so it's, I don't want to be taking credit for like, Oh, you're sparking a revolution by challenging the narrative. It's like, no, no, it's a, it's a, whole community of people that are doing that and i am one of them but there are people that are much more knowledgeable than me that's why i stick to music people ask me on tiktok you know do this actor or what about the you know do one on jeff bezos or what about this person in real estate or whatever and it's like i i don't want to step outside of my lane you know um and uh music is the only thing that i have direct lived experience with and even then, I tend not to focus on uh, black and 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 uh, you know indigenous and people of color. Uh, like you know, I'm not dismantling a lot of rappers uh, like like Jay Z or something because that's a whole separate component. You know, being black in America that uh, I'm not qualified to speak about. Um, um, I'm only qualified to learn about. Right. So that if somebody wants to start doing that series, like like please please do it. But so whenever I'm asked about my TikTok videos, I always like to point that out because um, I don't, I don't want to take any credit for like 
there's a phrase I say in, in the videos that we're, none of us are self-made, all of us are community-made. Like I didn't come up with that. Like I learned that from uh, indigenous activists specifically, and that was revolutionary for me because I, like everyone else, grew up with you know toxic individualism as the like work hard, and as long as you work hard, you will be rewarded for your hard work, right? The American dream, and yeah. and that's just not it's it's propaganda. It's not true. So, uh, but I've only known that and. Like no one in my bones known that for like the last five or six years or so. And, and my, my partner also like is really, um, she's a, oh, she's so cool. She's, uh, like an amazing, uh, activist and organizer and a dancer and a choreographer and artist and mover and, um, creator. And she's the founder of the, uh, artist collective that I'm a part of called good troublemakers. Oh. And she, she taught, she taught and continues to teach me like every day, like a whole bunch of stuff that, that I would never be exposed to had I not met her because of, you know, of, uh, the insulation that, that white privilege provides. So like, all that is to say, like, if someone is watching me and it's the first time they ever come to activism, like, welcome now go learn from the people that I'm learning from. Like I'm not an authority. Like I, I'm, I'm just making, uh, I'm just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah. You're helping their message get out to more. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, that's one of the first things I noticed about you actually, when I came across you is your values and that you use your platform for good and what matters to you. You know, you want to, you believe in something. It's not just, false or you know it's not like some pop star you look at and oh i just want yeah. to get rich and famous you actually care about what matters to you you know yeah i i do and it's a double-edged sword because like the first time i got a video that got a million hits like i was it was really weird for me because i tried so long to get those, those kind of numbers on music right mm. and here i am i've got this number now but it's on like me talking about somebody else and so on the one hand it's an incredible privilege to like it, it's it's just such a, a mind fuck for me that like even even let's say even uh half those views were repeat viewings so five hundred thousand people i i can't my mind can't imagine that number like that many people saw my face or heard my <laughs> voice like it's weird yeah and some of them say stuff like, like, oh, you're just bitter or, oh, you're jealous of these people's success. And no, like I, I'm not, I'm neither of those things. Like I'm trying to point out for my fellow independent artists that the enormous pressure that we put on ourselves, because I've done it my whole life of, I know that I'm good, right? Because of this, this, and this. And there is a target audience for everything. My favorite example, you know, there's three human centipede movies, possibly the grossest movies ever made. They made three of them. That means people love it. Somebody <laughs> does, right? So there's target audience for you. So even if a person doesn't like my music specifically, like that's fine. There are people that do. Um, it's all about finding your target audience. And so how come it took me so long? You know, I was 32 or 33 when I got signed. Like I, I previously I had been like, if I don't get signed by the time I'm 30, I've got to hang it up. I've got to get like a civilian job. And I just kept going. Uh, actually based on a quote that Harrison Ford, the actor said, where he said, I, I saw a lot of people way more talented than me quit. 
And one of the reasons that I got the opportunities that I did is I just hung around. And also, I don't think that I could because music is such a fundamental part of who I am. I don't know what I'd be if I couldn't do it. But um, I was like, why am I not getting the opportunities that these people, you know, every every uh, one to three years, there's the new teen pop idol, you know, like and this person always comes out of nowhere and like they just uploaded something on the SoundCloud and it blew up and then they got all the offers and wow, they're amazing. And it's like, no, what happened is one of these things. They come from wealth or they were planted there by the industry or if you look up their real name, they're the son of a or the daughter or, or whatever of a celebrity. And at the same time, that doesn't take away from that person's talent, right? Like Billie Eilish definitely has a vibe. Like she's got a cool voice, like she, mm. and she's like a talented performer and she comes from a show business, like entertainment family. And so she, she had it easier than someone who doesn't come from that. You know, I, I inhabit a, a white cis body. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not cis, but I inhabit a cis passing body. Um, I, um, I grew up, uh, in a upper middle class family. So that means they owned property. Like, uh, only one of my parents, uh, worked for the first 12 years because my dad had a job as a teacher. And at the time that paid enough for them to be able to, you know, we had a garage and they were able to buy me a guitar and like that kind of stuff. Like I'm on a different point in the ladder of privilege, but everybody is, has something that somebody else doesn't have. You know, right now in LA, there's a huge, uh, there has been for a while, but ever growing, uh, unhoused, uh, population and people, and I feel like, especially in America, we're obsessed with this idea of like the rags to riches story. Like they went from being homeless to becoming a multinational superstar. And so if they can do it, you can too. And it's like, well, oftentimes, no, that's a lie. But even if they did, that means they didn't do that by themselves. They're was a series of people that that helped them. You know, people that helped me or my father was a musician. So I learned, started learning really early. The teachers that I had, all the people that I've ever played with, all the bands that I've ever played with, anyone that's ever bought a copy of my music or listened to my music, anyone that's ever watched one of my videos, all those people are helping me advance forwards. Hmm. Um, I didn't just generate that out of nothingness, right? And... Um, so going back to, you know, I think that makes people un uncomfortable because it it feels like you have less control because we're, we're all told from birth, like work hard and your hard work will pay off and you can work as hard as you want in a, in a lot of industries and you'll, and that'll get you to the wall and then yeah. you can't get past the wall without somebody letting you in. Um, very different than like, uh, and that's before you get into like jobs that don't have a career track. Like a lawyer has a career track, mm. whereas a musician, like everybody's story is completely different because there is no one way to do it. It's always this combination. So, so yeah, I absolutely have things that I, that I believe in and I, I, I want to help lift up my fellow artists, not just myself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what's important as well, you know? And it's, I hate the way society almost, is made to hold you down you know they build you up with these hopes and dreams but then there's like practically no chance of you achieving them but uh also there's a there's a band that is the perfect example 
of what you're talking about in Ireland right now. I don't know if you've heard of him. Have you ever heard of Inhaler? No, but I'll look him up now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so last year, they exploded onto the scene. They were play, being played on all the top radio stations. Seemed to have come from nowhere. The lead singer's father is Bono from U2. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, awesome. Thanks. You just gave me an idea for another video, so I'm going to do that for sure. <laughs> but yeah, well, it was probably hard, right? It's it was probably hard for him to... Uh, well, actually, I don't know how he identifies, but how that person identifies. But they uh, just because Bono's your father doesn't mean you're going to get industry connections, right? I'm being completely sarcastic. Yes, of course they are. Your father's Bono. Like, yeah, there is a uh, the one I I just uploaded last night is about this band that I'd never heard of called um, the Slim Kings, mm. and they're when you look at them, they're an indie band. Like, they barely have like any following online and they play small shows. But when then you look at their credits, they've got like all these major placements and like major Netflix and Showtime shows and stuff. And they've uh, performed with uh, all these legendary bands like ZZ Top and Los Lonely Boys and, and their drummer, uh, they work with a professional drummer that's been around forever and has played with Paul McCartney and like, uh, John Mayer, like all these, all these credits. Um, and they're, they have an impressive list of accolades. And you're like, how do I not know who they are? And how did they achieve all this? Oh, well, their, their lead singer, is last name is Sackler. And Sackler is one of the five billionaire families in the United States. So he decided that, you know, he wanted to do like the indie musician route. He wasn't going after fame specifically. And why would he need to? You know, he's set. But it just means that he was able to at the very least focus on music full time. Let's say he, let's say he accomplished every one of those things by himself. He still was able to have the time to do that because he didn't have to work. He didn't have yeah. to worry about bills and rent and tour expenses and like all that stuff. And, but it's the reason I start to get mad is it's I, not for faulting somebody for coming from money. You can't help where you're born, mm-hmm. but it's not presented that way. Like when you read interviews about him, it's like, Oh, I, the one that made me mad was it was called a man and his music. And he, uh, you know, he's just a, he's just a band coming out of the New York scene and they've been getting some notoriety lately. And yeah, I do allude to sort of like my father was this famous psychiatrist and, uh, you know, my uncle's in the recording industry or whatever, but like, gosh, we've been able to have these, all these experiences and like, yeah, they're, his, his uncle, I mean, his father was a famous psychiatrist uh, who found, uh, helped expand and found Purdue Pharma, which is the maker of Oxycontin and like, like the, just like money forever. Right. Mm. Uh, so I think one of the important things, you know, if you're Bono's kid is to always bring that up in interviews. Cause like, like, you know, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, one of the reasons I'm here talking to you today, Stephen Colbert or whatever is, is, uh, you know, because of who my father is. And I, of course, I want to distance myself from my father and try to achieve things on my own. But um, it's important to note that I, you know, there's no guarantee that I would be here. And that that person has a large voice so they could talk about these things that we've been talking about today yeah. and raise issue to that and bring other bands with them and all that. So, you know, I, I think that artists have a responsibility to, um, bring people along with them at whatever level that they can. And Mm. 
I don't think a lot of artists, or at least a lot of the major artists, like like to hear that or or, or forget that along the way somehow. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to even think of a solution that would make it fairer for the normal Joe Soaps coming up the ladder as well. Like you can't, if you were to totally flip it and say, right, if you come from a privileged background, you can't have the same opportunities because then you're limiting that side as well. You know, it's hard to come up with a, a solution almost. Yeah, I mean, and I certainly don't have the, if we just did this, everything, <laughs> I think because it's a multifaceted problem. Right. Mm. And, and they're also linked to all these societal factors like we've been talking about, you know, the most obvious of which is uh, monopolies. You know, if we and we already know, like back when there were more independent record companies, they could be still be huge, but there were still more options. They were competing with each other to have the best artists, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so they, you know, A&R people were actually going out to shows looking for artists and they had. Uh, actually had people who were skilled at identifying talent and betting on talent as opposed to, okay, well, this artist has 10 million followers, but this artist has 20 million. So the 20 million one's got to be better. It's like, no, those are just numbers. Like, yeah, it has nothing to do with like creativity, originality, longevity, what the artist is trying to say. It's not about content. You see that reflected in the movie industry too. It's like they're only making stuff now that either is an established property that sold before, so they know it'll sell again, or something that is so perfectly stacked with whoever is currently trending the most that it's like a sure investment. And and that's because you know, I mean, there's very few actually. Disney owns like half of the movie studios, right? And then I forget who the other one, Warner, but um, there used to be a lot more independent independent studios who would take chances on films or like, or, you know, these five films are going to be our big money-making films this year. And those give us the money to try this out, this movie or try out this movie and see if that works. Um, So that could be a step returning, you know, any kind of, I think we're supposed to, we're supposed to have, what is it called? It's an antitrust, uh, anti-monopoly laws, but nobody enforces them. Um, so that could be one thing. And also uh, the listener, I think, can do a lot by trying to search out um, stuff that you like beyond what the algorithm's presenting you. Because the mm-hmm. algorithm, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you go to uh, you know, go to whatever band and then go to similar artists. And then at a certain point, it just stops. And there's like, there's no more similar artists. Like, <laughs> bullshit. There's, there's infinite similar artists to whoever you're trying to listen yeah. to. But these are the ones that Spotify is showing you. Mm. based on again like these artificial metrics of like well do they have over like for example on spotify if a song has under a thousand plays it just shows under a thousand like it it doesn't there's a graphic that says like less than a thousand it doesn't say 12 it doesn't say uh, you know 999 it's less than so it's it's saying the message that this song is completely worthless until it reaches at least a thousand plays but then mm. once you reach a thousand plays, well, it only has a thousand plays. This song has 200,000 plays. It's got to be better. <laughs> yeah. And as long as we're determining everything only by those kind of data points, not that those data points don't have knowledge it's, or have some importance. It's just, if it's only down to like a spreadsheet, that's not how art works. You, you can't quantify what one song is to one person based on how somebody else reacted to that song. 
uh, everybody, you know, something like music is an incredibly personal experience. And the way that I interpret song X is not going to be the same way that you interpret song no. X. It's not going to be the same way that somebody else, you know, so listeners actually have the, and, you know, viewers, consumers have the power to actually determine what's good as long as they continue to search for what's good and not just accept what's fed to them. Yeah. What's being fed to you has an agenda behind it specifically. Yeah. How do you feel about um, the whole TikTok thing then of like a clip of music will uh, get a load of views on a video and then the next week it's the biggest song out there, you know, and it might be the, the not the greatest song you've ever heard, but it gets, uh, it overshadows all genuinely good music. I think that um, there's the illusion of scarcity, right? There's always room for another good song, another mm. good movie, another good painting, another good dance performance, whatever. So if a clip of a song blows up, whether that's organically, and then then because of those numbers, a label comes calling and plugs it into the system, or it was a label or a marketing firm that made it blow up or whatever. I don't think that if we're talking about TikTok specifically, that doesn't overshadow another artist it just means um that's one of the ways to get your music out there right now and it's totally it's totally it's totally possible to have a song blow up um that way for a completely independent artist it's Hmm. absolutely possible um the odds are not great but at least there's odds as opposed exactly if you upload them to instagram there's no way unless unless you have a huge budget yeah Um, so right now, even though TikTok is like, a, what is it? A Chinese government spyware app, basically. Like it's still, <laughs> it's one of the bright spots in the industry because like, I've, I've been doing this like a long time since I was 14. And that's the first time that I've had the validation of having uh, my music being put in front of an audience Mm. on a more massive level and then just having people respond to it and some some people like it and some people don't but the and the people that don't like it don't tend to follow me and that's fine like that's how it's supposed to work but then i do find the people that do like me and then we found each other and i can make music for them and they can listen to it and and, and because it's a social media app we can engage with each other and like we're it's a community and i think it's funny that tiktok is is described as like a revolutionary who could have predicted and it's like everyone everyone could have predicted like (laughs) all artists want to do is for people to consume their art and all consumers want it is more content so stop creating barriers in between those things yeah yeah exactly exactly i could literally sit here all all day talking about this but uh I just realized you probably have other things to do today. So we better move on to the last couple of questions. Sure. So uh, I usually ask these to get a taste of your, your music tastes. Okay. If you could see any performer from history in concert for one night only, who would it be? Oh, oh my God. I've been asked this question before and it's impossible because there's <laughs> so many great ones throughout history. Um, well, I was fortunate that I got to see B.B. King before he passed away, and that really? was amazing. Um, yeah, I was really, I was young, but I still got to see him. He, he like, <laughs> he was like, I don't know, 80 or something. They wheeled him out on a chair, and, and, and you thought, like, oh, God, they're just making money off this guy. And then, like, he just, like, 
destroyed. Like he was incredible. He, he still like, has it. Oh, better even. <laughs> yeah. Like just, just amazing. Um, and sitting down too, you know, and it's just like, uh, I, I personally really would have loved to have been able to see queen. Uh, I find Freddie Mercury so inspiring. Um, but, and that's the person that jumped into my mind at the moment. Um, there he's on my mind today because I was, I was listening to queen earlier, but, um, so that's as close as I can't, I can't, there's, there's too many. I can't answer with just a, just a one. Um, mm. It'd have to be a, a big festival. Yeah, because like I never got to see Jimi Hendrix. Uh, I never got to see James Brown. I never got to see like we talked earlier, Big Mama Thornton. I, you know this before I was mm. even alive. Like I never. Um, so I I never got to see Prince. Oh my God, Prince! Like um, yeah, never had the opportunity. So there there would just be a revolving door of people. <laughs> <laughs> be one hell of a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> The next one. So if you could spend 24 hours in a room with any artist or performer from history, who would it be? It's the same question. It's just even more <laughs> personal. I'm not just watching them. I'm with them now. Uh, uh, this time I am going to say Prince because uh, as someone who is writing music by myself and playing all the instruments, um, whether, um, uh, organically or, or digitally. I mean, I certainly don't compare it to Prince and I, I would, I would love to be able to soak up, uh, you know, a writing session with him or something mm. just, and just be around that energy because he was an endless talk about a vessel for creativity. Yeah. Uh, I heard, I heard this story where he used to, after playing a full like two hour show, he would invite the people backstage back to his place where he would then continue to just perform new ideas on the piano <laughs> forever for so long he'd wear people out like people would like pass out or like want to leave but you can't leave because <laughs> prince is playing right but yeah like so to be around that creative energy and such like a a truly revolutionary icon would be such a privilege mm, yeah he's one of them ones it really is a pity that he was taken so young yeah you know? i mean i do that one of the, when i was experimenting what videos to try and do on TikTok. One I did was uh here's like 20 seconds of a John Mayer guitar solo or I sorry Adam Levine from Maroon 5 and 20 seconds of Prince. And my point was Prince is objectively better because he has this intrinsic quality called soul and feel, right? Mm. And Adam from Maroon 5 can play the hell out of the guitar, but it's very technical and I don't feel anything when he plays. Yeah. And that sparked I did, it, it brought an avalanche of guitar bros yelling at me, which I was not prepared for uh, because they were, but they were intellectualizing music. They're focusing on like technique. Well, Prince technically uh, should have been doing this. And it's like when Prince plays, I feel something. When mm. Maroon 5 plays, I feel nothing. Uh, for me, and that's my subjective opinion, right? Somebody else could have a completely different opinion. But for me, that's what I want from art is I want it to make me feel. And yeah. Uh, and Maroon 5 is a very calculated product uh, that is very well done. It, like, it's, a, it's amazingly well executed and they have a great writing team and all that stuff. Catchy. But I don't feel anything when I listen to it. And all Prince has to do is say, Dearly Beloved, in that beginning of that song. And you're just like, like you're in. Yeah. So. Yeah. But then that's it about music as well as most basic form. 
it has to make you feel something. You know? Yeah, I mean, there's. I agree with you. There's there's people that disagree with us throughout uh, history. Like I don't know. Do you know who John Cage is? No. He was revolutionary in the '60s because his performance was the art of non-performance. So his his most famous piece is he walks out onto stage to a grand piano and he sits down and does nothing for four minutes and thirty three <laughs> seconds. And right. his point was everything is performance and everything is music because while and this is a piece because while I sit down here. My breathing is happening. The audience is shifting like uncomfortably or coughing. There's the sound of the auditorium. There's, uh, you know, air. There's um, all everything that's happening in this room can never be replicated this exact way again. And now that I, I now I'm left and that was a performance. And while intellectually I agree with him, mm-hmm. I'd say that that's not music. That's art. Exactly. But that doesn't make me feel anything. And when I I, I had the privilege of going to um, uh, graduate school because I wanted to get a degree so that I could teach and now I'm horribly in debt but um, that school that I went to loved him and like it was all about that like intellectualizing music and that was at the same time that I was like signing a deal and stuff and I felt like like doing the real music in the industry so I couldn't have felt more isolated in the place like that is purporting to be about music be- because they're intellectualized. No one was concerned with feel there. Yeah. So well, except the jazz department, uh, <laughs> the, the jazz class was great. I, uh, that's all about feel, but everything else was just like looking down the nose at like anything pop or singer songwriter or rock or whatever. And it was mm. all like, no, we've got to make people think. And it's like, well, then you're artists, you're, you're doing art or performance art. That's all fine, but that's not music. Damn it. And, uh, so yeah, but I, I agree with you. The music's supposed to make move your soul and your feet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. The um the last one. So if there was a song that could appear on the soundtrack to your life, what would it be? I I feel like songs do all all the time because I'm listening to music constantly. Like every song that I fall in love with becomes part of the soundtrack to my life. I mean, if you're interested in in sort of what I'm listening to currently, uh, it's on my Spotify profile. You just go to search Vatica and I have uh, play a couple of different playlists on there that stuff that I'm listening to. Mm. Uh, but so there's no, there's definitely no one, one song. Although the song that comes to me in, in this moment is uh, actually, it's called Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber um, because it's one of the few usually not a big classical music fan, but it's one of the few pieces that uh, perfectly captures the um, the sort of poignant agony of uh, striving, of like, of like trying to uh, yearning and, and whether that's for accomplishment or love or whatever um, there, there's this part of the piece where it crescendos uh, so long that it's almost intolerable. And finally it decays. Um, it's a violin piece and um, it's the first piece of classical music I ever heard my whole life that moved me to tears. So um, that, that would definitely be in there for sure. Yeah. It'd have to, if it got that sort of reaction from you, I suppose. Yeah. You yeah. made me think of something as well, though, uh, about back on the topic of music. What I love about music is a song could come on the radio and it'll instantly bring the memories of when mm. 
I heard it first and I always say some of my friends think I'm slightly odd for it, but I could almost tell you what the smells I was smelling were the first time I heard it. I absolutely love that about music. You know, it makes it so much more than music and it makes it so much a personal experience. Absolutely. Uh, I forget the exact terminology. There's science behind that. Uh, Music and memory are uh, stored and processed in different parts of the brain Mm. And uh, they actually survive often diseases like uh, Alzheimer's. Um, I yeah. back when I was teaching uh, guitar lessons, I had a student who was like seventy six or something, and he used to be like a really accomplished guitar player, but he had Alzheimer's, and so he'd come in, and each time he'd come in for beginning guitar lessons, mm. and then over the course of the lesson, he'd remember that he could play the guitar. And suddenly he'd become this virtuoso and he'd light up again, like as a person, um, even though he wasn't good uh, communicating verbally really anymore. And then he'd leave and then he'd come back and he'd have forgotten it all again. And the process would happen. So it was like one way it was the same lesson over and over and over. But um, you're absolutely right that, that music can transport you back to a time and place or forward to a time and place. And you can recall the sense, the sense memories and everything. Um, It's it's incredibly powerful. I I think it's also because it it goes beyond. It's it is a universal language in a lot of ways. Like it goes beyond thought and speech and cuts right to emotion and, and feeling if, if done correctly. Um, mm. Just just the same way a really beautiful shot in a film or, or a painting or an ex- expression that a dancer does with their body or can speak to something that you know, it takes a paragraph of words to describe. Yeah. Yeah. Or hint exactly. at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. We got, uh, we got very deep this, this afternoon. Didn't we? <laughs> you're, you're talking about my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. I'll, I'm here all day. Yeah. Yeah. So what's on the cards for the future for Vatica? Well, that's, uh, I'm definitely going to keep, uh, making stuff on, TikTok. I'm going to keep releasing music uh, as far as any and music videos uh, as far as anything else. Who knows? Because we're really in this really uncertain time of uh, you know, this once in a century pandemic, and uh, you know, de- I'm currently dealing with the collapse of the uh, American Empire and the rise of fascism, and uh, so like everything's uncertain right down to the quality of the air that we breathe. So I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I know that I'm going to be creating art through all of it. And so either I'll become really successful at that and I won't, or I won't, but uh, in terms of like uh, prominence or whatever, but I already feel accomplished in that I'm, I'm the stuff that I'm creating now is me as opposed to a filtered version of me. And so I'm kind of at peace with that. Second chances Searching for a spark Looking for the answers in the dark I can't even tell if you can hear me 
news and guest interviews with artists from all around the world across many different genres? My name's Nolan and I love music. 
In fact, I love music so much I created a podcast entirely dedicated to it called Every Podcast I Love is Dead. Every week is a brand new episode where I interview musicians, artists, podcasters, radio hosts, and so much more. New episodes are available every Thursday on all your favorite podcast streaming platforms, and you can check us out on social media and at everypodcastiloveisdead.com. Hope you can join me. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this show. If you did, rate and review us on iTunes. Really helps the show grow. You can find us on social media at Concerts That Made Us Podcast. And be sure to check out our website at www.concertsthatmadeus.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by signing up at patreon.com forward slash concerts that made us. We've got three tiers available. If that's something you're interested in, you'll get access to a private Discord, exclusive uncut video versions of the podcast, early access to ad-free versions of the episodes, and much, much more. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey, hey, what are you guys still doing there? The show is over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here.